We know the old saying, if you can't take the heat, what? Get out the kitchen. I said that in the first service and somebody came up and said, hey, I heard a new one. It says, if you don't want to run with the big dogs, stay on the porch. I like that. Well, however you say it, the truth is the same. And Bobby Inman did exactly that. You say, Bobby Inman. Boy, that sounds familiar. Who is that? Well, Bobby Inman was nominated by President Clinton to be Secretary of Defense back in December the 14th, and three weeks later withdrew his name. And I don't know if you saw that really bizarre news conference that he held. As part of it, he said that the reason he withdrew is that he decided the job wasn't worth having to put up with the criticism of columnists like William Sapphire and with the slander of people like Senator Robert Dole. It was a really weird news conference. And put simply, Inman said, I don't need this. And so he withdrew. Now, what did he expect? This is Washington. What did the man think was going to happen? I mean, has anyone ever been in leadership? Has anyone ever been in a position of being in the public eye and escaped slander, escaped opposition, regardless of how great a leader they were? I don't think they have. I mean, we look at Abraham Lincoln. By every poll, He's the consensus number one greatest president America ever had. And yet while he was president, he was vilified and slandered and opposed in some horrible ways. General McClellan, his chief general, called him the original guerrilla. Samuel Morse, who invented the telegraph, said that he was illiterate, weak, and vacillating. And a Southern California newspaper wrote and said that Lincoln was a narrow-minded bigot, an unprincipled demagogue, and a driveling, idiotic imbecile. And you think you got it bad. Now, people have slandered and opposed Moses and David and Alexander the Great and Caesar and Napoleon and Churchill and even Mother Teresa they've gotten on. You say, Lon, what's the point? The point is that in our passage for this morning, we're going to see people do this very same thing to Jesus Christ. We're going to see them oppose him. We're going to see them slander him, except that there's one big difference. And the difference is that when you oppose Jesus Christ, the stakes are much higher. I mean, listen, convince somebody to reject Caesar or Napoleon, and at the most, you'll cost them some political power. Convince somebody to reject Churchill or Mother Teresa, and maybe you'll cost their nation or themselves some benefit that these great people would have brought them. But you convince somebody to reject Jesus Christ, and it'll cost them their soul. The stakes are higher. And so Jesus just doesn't turn his back and walk away from this slander and opposition. He confronts it. We're going to watch him do that, and then we're going to answer the really important question, which is, so what? Right. So let's look and see. We're here in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been dumb spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, he's driving out other demons. And others were testing him by asking for a sign from heaven. Now, I'm going to do something that we don't do very often, and that is I'm going to tell you that in Matthew's gospel, we have the very same account, but we have some slightly different details that Matthew gives us. And I want us to work out of Matthew's account of this, because there's some things he tells us Luke doesn't that I think help us understand better what's going on. So I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 12. 
If you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 690, Matthew chapter 12, the very same incident, very same happening, but recorded by Matthew instead of Luke. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. They brought to Jesus a man who was demon-possessed, who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Okay, this is the same guy now, right? Now, And all of the people were astonished. We saw that in Luke chapter 11. And they said, could this be the son of David? Say, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 11, was to be a descendant of David. That the Messiah, Micah chapter 5, was to be born in David's city. That the Messiah, 2 Samuel chapter 7, was to sit on David's throne and rule forever. And so the name Son of David became another title or another name for Messiah. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus asked a crowd, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they spoke up and said, Well, of course, he's the son of David. So what these people are really asking is, Is this man, Jesus Christ, the one who just did this miracle, could this man really be the Messiah of Israel? That's what they're asking. Now, who are they asking that question? Well, they're asking their rabbis, who was part of the crowd and were listening. And the rabbis respond, look, verse 24. But when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the rabbis heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, that this fellow's driving out demons. Now, folks, the religious leaders of Israel, the rabbis, had to answer the people's question. The people said, look, look at the miracle he just did. Could this man be the Messiah of Israel? The rabbis had to answer that. And the people were smart enough to know that you can't walk around and do the miracles Jesus did unless there was something supernatural that was driving you. So what options are there? Well, there's God. He's supernatural. And there's Satan, the devil himself. So which of the two forces supernaturally is giving Jesus the power to do his miracles? That was their question. All right? Now, the rabbis, if they admit that it's God that's giving Jesus the power to do his miracles, well, then we got a problem, don't we? Because if Jesus is doing it by the power of God, then Jesus is telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, then he's the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, that means that every one of those rabbis ought to get down on their knees and humble themselves and agree to follow him and obey him and serve him. But those rabbis weren't about to do that. So they can't say he's from God because they can't deal with the implications of that. You with me? So they say, well, you're right. There has to be a supernatural power behind what Jesus is doing. And they say it's the power of Beelzebub, which is another name they used in that day for the devil. He's doing it by the prince of the demons. He's doing it by the power of the devil himself. It's very important for us to understand, friends, what's going on here. That these rabbis are not just opposing Jesus Christ for themselves. They were doing that, but it's far more serious than that. Their sheep are asking them, as the shepherds of Israel, Rabbi, is this our Messiah? Rabbi, should we follow this man? Rabbi, is this the one we've been looking for and waiting for? Should we serve and obey him? 
And in response, the rabbis say, no, he is not. He's a fraud. He's an imposter. He's a fake. You should not follow him. You should not listen to him. Don't pay attention to a word he has to say. He's not the Messiah. These men are trying to actively persuade hundreds and thousands of people not to believe in Jesus Christ, not to embrace Him as their Savior, not to follow Him, not to listen to Him. And so there are thousands of souls hanging in the balance. You know, many times when Jesus was opposed by the rabbis, He just walked away, said, eh, and walked away. But He's not going to walk away from this one because there are too many souls hanging in the balance. People are listening and people are watching. So he turns and he confronts them. Now, have they opposed him? Yes. Have they slandered him? Yeah. They've said he did everything he did by the power of the devil. What does he do? Watch. Verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, Hey, look, guys, every kingdom divided against itself is going to be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. Now, how in the world can his kingdom stand if he does something like that? Jesus turns and first addresses this charge of the rabbis that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he says, now, fellas, just use your head, would you? I mean, let's just use some simple logic here. Think about the Roman Empire for a minute. If Caesar went around killing all of his local governors who were out there doing his dirty work, how in the world could his empire survive? If President Clinton went around destroying the careers of all the Democrats that support him, all the Democratic senators, all the Democratic congressmen, and all the Democratic local officials that support him, how in the world could his administration ever survive? And so now you say I'm Satan and I'm walking around casting out my own demons. Fellas, think, you know, think. That makes no sense at all. Why in the world, if I was Satan, would I go around casting out my own demons who were out there serving me and doing my dirty work for me? Now, why would I do that? That makes no sense whatsoever. Fellas, that dog won't hunt. And you got to face that. So what other options do we have here? Well, the only other option we have is down in verse 28. Jesus said, but if I drive out demons by the power of the Spirit of God, well, that's the only other option. And Jesus says, that's what I am doing. I am doing my miracles by the power of the Spirit of God. I am the true Messiah of Israel. If that indeed is true, then the kingdom of God has come upon you and you're staring the kingdom of God right in the face when you look at me because I'm exactly who I claim to be. Do you understand what he says to them? He goes on to say in verse 29, or again, how can anybody enter a strong man's house, meaning Satan, and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. In other words, the reason I'm able to go around and cast out Satan's demons is because I'm stronger than he is. I entered his house, tied him up, said he can't do anything to stop me, and now I can go around and wreck his house. So you need to understand you're dealing with somebody who's even stronger than Satan himself. Now, these are the claims that Jesus makes for himself, and he makes them without apology. I think they're some pretty incredible claims. You know that? And Jesus demands then that the rabbis and the people listening deal with them. Now, so far this morning, I've been real good. I haven't mentioned football. I haven't mentioned the Super Bowl. But did you see when the Bills won the AFC game that they held up that big poster was in the newspaper? Did you see the big poster they held up? Remember what it said? It said, we're back. Deal with it, America. 
Do you see that poster? You know, the guys who made up that poster won two free tickets to the Super Bowl. They were having a contest in Buffalo to see who could come up with the most clever poster if they won the game. And those guys won two tickets to the Super Bowl with a poster that said, we're back, deal with it, America. When I saw that poster, I thought, this is kind of like what happens here with Jesus Christ. It's as though Jesus Christ unfurled a banner right over top of him that said, I am the Son of God, now deal with it, Israel. I don't know what the fans in Buffalo want the rest of America to do to deal with it. I'm already rooting for them because I'm ABD. You know ABD? Anybody but you got it. So I'm already rooting for them. But Dallas is going to kill them, guys. I'm going to have to eat it next week. Dallas is going to mash them. You don't even watch it. Dallas is going to murder these guys. The point is, what do they want us to do to deal with them being back to four Super Bowls? I can't help it if they're going to lose four times in a row. What am I supposed to do? But you know what? There was something that Jesus wanted Israel to do to deal with it. It was very simple. Jesus wanted them to accept him as their personal Savior. He wanted them to surrender to him as their personal Lord. And he wanted them to embrace him as the Messiah of Israel. That's what dealing with it meant for Israel. Now, did they do it? Did the rabbi suddenly go, oh, gee, you know, you're right. It is kind of illogical what we said, isn't it? Oh, you must be the Messiah. Is that what they did? (laughs) Not on your life. Look at verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Now, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you to prove you're the Messiah. Went out, time out. What was wrong with the one he'd just done about five minutes before that? He just did one. Just healed a guy that was blind and couldn't talk. What was wrong with that one? Do you really think that these rabbis were sincere? Do you really think if Jesus had done another miraculous sign right then and there that they would have fallen on their knees and suddenly said, Oh, you're right. You are the Messiah. Oh, you're right. Do you really think they would have done that? No way. You don't really think that, do you? What were they doing? Well, they were stalling. They were playing political games. They had a whole crowd that was watching and Jesus had just shot their wad full of holes and they didn't know what to say. So they're just trying to buy some time. These people aren't interested in believing. Friends, if these guys were really interested in believing in Jesus Christ, Jesus had done so many miracles already, they'd have been already in his camp. These people weren't interested. You know, miracles don't convince anybody of anything unless their heart's open to believing. You can do all the miracles you want. If somebody doesn't want to believe, they're not going to believe. Did you read about what happened out in L.A. with the earthquake? What does God have to do to convince us here in America? He sent Hugo to the East Coast, and he sent the floods to the Midwest, and then he sent the earthquake to the West Coast. I mean, what's he got to do? And did you read out there? I read it in the paper on Saturday. When the earthquake hit out there, it destroyed a whole bunch of film studios up in the valley. Say, up in the valley. I thought all the films... Well, these are the porno film studios where they make all the porno films, thousands of them, and it wrecked it. The buildings fell down, millions of dollars of equipment was destroyed, and they interviewed one of the guys who makes these porno films in the newspaper, and he said, these religious fanatics think this is going to convince us that God's trying to tell us to straighten up. Never happened. We'll be back in business in a week. Well, what's God have to do to these people? He knocks their building down, destroys their cameras. What's he got to do to these people to convince them to turn around and listen? Folks, if you're not interested in listening, no amount of signs in the world is going to convince you to listen. These rabbis weren't interested in listening, and no amount of miracles in the world was going to convince them. Jesus knew that. That's why he answered them the way he did. Look at verse 39. 
Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign after all the signs I've already given you and you want more? No. Jesus said, I'm only giving you one more sign, and that's the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, meaning himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But Jesus said, you're not going to listen to that either. So, verse 41, the men of Nineveh are going to stand up in judgment with this generation and condemn you guys, for they repented. They changed their mind. They turned back to God when Jonah came and preached to them after the fish spit him up. But somebody far greater than Jonah's here, Jesus Christ, and you guys aren't even listening to him. Now, what's Jesus talking about the sign of Jonah? Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about his resurrection. Jesus said, Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. In the same way, I'm going to spend three days and three nights in the grave. You say, you don't really believe Jonah did this, do you? Absolutely. And given more time, I'd explain to you exactly why. But if Jesus is wrong about this, he's wrong about everything else. And I know he wasn't wrong when he changed my life 21 years ago. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, he knows all about Jonah. Yeah, I believe it happened. Absolutely. And then the Bible says Jonah emerged alive and well three days later. Jesus says, so am I. So am I. I'm going to give you guys one more sign, Jesus said, and it's going to be the big daddy of them all. If there was ever any doubt before, there's not going to be any doubt now. I mean, I've gone around dealing with germs and blindness and paralysis and turning water into wine. But really, that's piddly stuff compared to what I'm going to do. I'm going to conquer death right in front of your eyes. And then I'm going to convince you I'm really who I said. But you guys, even then, you're not going to believe Jesus said. Have you ever been close to death? Have you ever been really close to somebody who's either dying or has just died? I don't know how to put it in words, but it's the most powerless, helpless feeling, I think, you can ever have as a human being. To have every doctor, every hospital person, every machine, every drug available, and there's not a thing you can do to stop this. You're absolutely and totally powerless to stop it. Have you ever had that feeling? Death is like the one thing that with every other advancement we've made, everybody's still powerless to stop it. About 10 years ago, a group of men and I from our church went down to a retreat in Syria, Virginia. You know where Syria, Virginia is? <laughs> I've been there and I don't even know where it is, to be honest with you. It's down somewhere in the mountains. But we got there, it was a quaint little retreat center. And I use quaint very kindly, if you know what I'm trying to say. Very quaint. And it was just a few buildings and a dining hall. And there was this little stream that ran right through the middle of this retreat center, except this was springtime. And with all the spring rains, this was not a stream anymore. It was a raging river with all of the rains. Well, there were some other people there. There was this one family that had two or three little kids there. And one of the little boys, he's about three years old at the time, was just the most precocious little kid. He was the sweetest little kid you'd ever want to see. We were there for an overnight, and the first day we were there, he'd come up to the table while we were eating at every meal, and he'd play around with us. But there's only one problem with the little boy. He couldn't speak. I don't know why. I never asked his mom and dad, but he couldn't say anything. So he'd point to things, but he couldn't speak. You know, everybody took a liking to this kid. I mean, you just it was hard not to take a liking to him. The second day we were there, we came in for lunch. We'd been meeting all morning. And his parents came up to us and said, have you seen Johnny? 
We said, well, well, no, we've been in a meeting all morning. They said, well, we can't find it. Would you all help us look for him? So we said, sure, we'll fan out and help you look for him. And we all fanned out, and, you know, walked around, Johnny, Johnny, come here, Johnny. Time for lunch, Johnny, come here, Johnny. No Johnny. So we all started to get a little more worried. I mean, nobody even wanted to think about the river. So we looked in the cabins. We looked up in the woods. We looked in basements. We tried to figure where would a kid hide, you know. Think back, way back when you were a kid. Where would you hide? Couldn't find him anywhere. Finally, everybody had to think about the river. So we waded into the river and started looking for this kid. Two of the guys who were with us found him washed up on a sandbar about half a mile down this river, lying there, we thought, dead. What had happened is he'd fallen in the river, but because he couldn't talk, he couldn't yell for help. And so the river swept him away, and he was never able to yell for help. I felt so, I mean, I just can't describe how we felt when we found this little kid. And one of the guys who was there, Jim Mitchell, who still is part of our church family, gave him CPR for a half hour while we waited for 911 to show up. We all followed the ambulance. We went back to the hospital. They called the trauma center up here in Washington, and over the phone, everything the trauma center said to do, they did. And we stood out there, right? We could see him in there. He was just, I mean, it was just, you're talking a little county hospital, you know. And we prayed for him, and we waited, and we prayed, and we waited. And I have never felt so helpless. That's the closest I had ever been to death at that point in my life. I'd never seen anybody dead up close like that. And they did everything for this little kid. They gave him oxygen. They put him on a respirator. They shot every kind of drug you can imagine into him. They heated him up. They put blankets around him. They put him under a heat light. They gave him electrical shock. They did everything you could think of for this kid. They had a helicopter on the way from Washington. And after about an hour working on him, they just pulled the blanket up over him and said, we're sorry. He's dead. There's nothing we can do. I have never felt so completely powerless in my whole life. Nothing they could do. But you know what I like when I look in the Bible? I like that Jesus Christ says that he's the master of death. I like that Jesus Christ says that he's not powerless over death. That's what he was telling these people. He was saying, I'm going to prove to you guys that I'm who I say because I'm going to beat the one thing nobody has any power over, and that's death itself. Jesus said, John chapter 10, I have the power to lay my life down. So do you. You could take a bunch of pills or go sit in your garage with the car on. But then he said, and I have the power to take my life up again. Now hold on. That's where you and and I and Jesus part company. Because you don't have that power and neither do I. But he said he did. And he proved it with the sign of Jonah. He proved it when he rose from the dead. He said to these guys, I'm going to give you the most awesome sign imaginable, fellas. I'm going to rise from the dead, and yet you're still not going to believe me. And he left that crowd standing there saying, okay, what are you going to do about it? I'm sure when he rose from the dead, many of those people who heard him speak remembered what he had said. But what did they do about it? That's the end of our passage. But it leaves us with the question, so what? Have you been noticing what's going on in our culture these days? You say, well, yeah, well, what are you talking about? Have you noticed everybody wants to be in neutral about everything? Have you noticed that? We are becoming PC land, where in PC land, nobody has an opinion, nobody has a conviction, nobody takes a stand, nobody cares about anything, everybody takes middle of the road, everybody walks right down the middle, nobody says anything to offend anybody, even if it's right, 
Everybody wants to be neutral. Everybody wants to have no opinion. Everybody doesn't want to get involved, and everybody wants to have no comment. No matter what you ask anybody anymore, it's no comment. Well, what do you think? No comment. Well, how about no comment? I think that that's probably pretty soon going to be the first thing that our kids learn. Would you like a banana? No comment. How about a cookie? No comment. I mean, what's happening to us? Americans, we don't want to take a stand on anything. We don't want to declare on anything. We don't want to take a position on anything anymore. Everybody wants to walk down the safe middle of the road and just have absolutely no opinion. Now, when it comes to Jesus Christ, will that work? Can you be PC about Jesus Christ? No, not with what he claimed. Listen to what he claimed. He claimed he was God in the flesh. He claimed that he was the one and only true way to have a relationship with God. He claimed that his blood shed on the cross was the one and only true payment for sin. He claimed that he was the one and only true door into heaven. And if you didn't enter by him, you didn't get in. And he claimed he was going to rise from the dead to prove everything else he claimed was true. Now, folks, if he rose from the dead... If he really is telling the truth about all those other things he claimed, then there is no place to be neutral about Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he says to these people. What response does he want from these people? Well, look, verse 30. Look with me at verse 30. Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now look at that again. He who is not avowedly, openly, unashamedly with me, where does Jesus say you stand? You're against him. And if you're not out there gathering with him actively and deliberately, what are you doing? You're scattering. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, hey folks, there's no playing Switzerland. You can't be Switzerland. You can't just say, I'm neutral, I'm neutral, I have no opinion, I'm not involved, don't get me involved. You can't do that. Everyone in the world, and folks, every single one of us here this morning in this audience is either actively, deliberately for Jesus Christ or in God's mind, we're against him. Jesus Christ says that in verse 30. He doesn't leave any middle ground. And if you're here and you've never declared that you're for Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and your personal Savior, then as far as God's concerned, you've declared you're against him. You say, but now, Lon, wait a minute. I've never done that. Maybe I haven't declared myself for Christ. Maybe I haven't made him my personal Savior, but I'm certainly not against him. I mean, I'm not walking around out here with big old signs with the National Atheist Union saying, don't believe in God. Jesus Christ was an idiot. I'm not doing anything like that. I mean, I'm just kind of going along minding my own business, but I haven't really decided for him or against him. I'm just kind of neutral. But do you see what Jesus said? Jesus said, there is no neutral. There is no neutral. You're either for him, or if you decide you're not for him, you've decided you're against him. There's no neutral, not with the claims Jesus made for himself. And if you're here and you've never cast your lot in with Jesus Christ, then dear friend, you need to understand that pleading neutrality when you face God is not going to work. Say, well, God, I mean, at least I wasn't against you. I was kind of middle of the road, neutral, not going to work. 
And it doesn't really matter whether you think you're against Jesus Christ or not. What matters when you and I get into eternity is what God thinks. And this is what God thinks. This is it. You're either for him or you're against him. You know, some of us here have been coming and listening for a long time. And we've been mulling it over in our mind and saying, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to believe in Jesus Christ? Is this really for me? We've never decided to take that personal step of faith. We're still thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. You know, that approach reminds me of what T. Boone Pickens said, the great industrialist. He said, the greatest problem in America is summed up by this statement. Ready, aim, 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 aim. What's our problem? Sooner or later, if you're going to make something happen, what do you have to do? You got to pull the trigger and what? You got to fire. Thank you in the back. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And spiritually, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, there are many of us here who have the attitude of ready, aim, 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 aim. And some of us are going to go to our grave aiming. But you see, when you face Christ and you say, God, I spent a whole lot of time aiming doesn't matter. The point is, did you fire? Did you step across the line and say, Christ, I'm with you. I'm for you. Actively, deliberately, unashamedly, I'm in your camp. I'm for you. That's what God's looking for from your life, from my life, from these people's lives. And if you've never done that, if you've been coming here a long time and just thinking about it for a long time, Friends, I hope you'll step across the line because thinking about it is not what God's interested in. He wants you to make a decision and he wants you to be for him. And you know what? There are many of us here who are as Christians who still need to hear this challenge because we've stepped across the line and said, we want Christ as our savior. Yes, sir. We want to trust him to pay for our sins. But when it comes to our personal life, we're still sitting on the fence in terms of Christ being the Lord of our life. You know, I used to think I was the Lord of my universe. I lived the first 20 years of my life being the Lord of my universe. Then at 21 years of age, Jesus Christ convinced me that he was the Lord of the universe. And he also convinced me there was not enough room in this universe for two lords. Not enough room for two of us. So one of us had to abdicate. Guess who wasn't willing to abdicate? Not him. He owns the universe. He's not abdicating. What he wanted me to do is abdicate. Well, I'll tell you, for me at that point, 21 years old, it wasn't that hard a decision. I'd been the Lord of my life for the first 20 years, and I had screwed my life up so bad that it wasn't even a hard decision to make. I turned my life over to Christ at that point. Friends, to let Jesus Christ be the Lord of my life, to let the Word of God and the will of God be the Lord of my life was the best decision I ever made in my life. The last 20 years since then have been the best 20 years of my life. You know, that's a decision many of us here need to make. When it comes to our business ethics, when it comes to our sexual habits, when it comes to our personal integrity, when it comes to our money and the words that come out of our mouth, God has a deliberate, active will for every one of those things. You can't be neutral on those things. You're either in line with what God says, deliberately committed to what God says, obeying and submitting to what God says and trying to live it as best you can, or you're not. But there's no middle ground. You can't be neutral. Being neutral means you've not embraced what God says and you're doing it your way and you're still the Lord of your life. I don't have any Christian bumper stickers on any of my cars. Say, why not? I don't have any fishes on my car. Say, why not? The answer is, I'm too bad a driver to have any of those things on my car. That's the honest to God truth. 
I would do more damage to my reputation and the reputation of Christ with bumper stickers on my car than you can possibly imagine. Now, I'm not proud of that, but it's true. I'm not the greatest driver in the world. I've even gotten letters from the governor reminding me that driving is a privilege, which I'm going to lose if I'm not careful. In Washington, even if you're a good driver, you can be a good driver and people still get mad at you. I mean, you don't have to do anything wrong. I've been driving down the road minding my own business, doing nothing wrong, had people ride by, yell nasty things and make nasty gestures at me, and I'm trying to figure out, I don't even know what I did. So I got no bumper stickers on my car, no fish on my car. But if I ever put a bumper sticker on my car, I'll tell you one that I would put on. It says this. I saw it the other day. It says, if God is your co-pilot, you need to switch seats. Is that a good bumper sticker? I love that bumper sticker. If God is your co-pilot, you need to switch seats. Because God's not along to be your co-pilot. What's he along to be? The pilot. That's right. Say, well, can I be the co-pilot? Can I be the navigator? My advice to you is go on in the back and be a passenger. It's the best thing you can do. Just stay out of the cockpit and let him fly the airplane and you just follow and you'd be the best thing could happen to your life. And friend, if that's going to happen, it's not going to happen by osmosis or by accident. You and I are going to have to make a deliberate decision to step off the throne, to abdicate as Lord of our life and let Jesus Christ have that position. The question is, are you willing to do it? Have you done it? If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and if the sign of Jonah is true, then what other option makes any sense? But let me just remind you, even if you're a Christian, when you get to heaven and God says, well, now about your business ethics and about your sexual habits and about your personal integrity and about your money and about those things that came out of your mouth, you say, oh, God, I was neutral. No, no, it won't sell. That dog won't hunt either. It's either I'm for you, Lord, or I made the decision I'm going to run my life my way. There's no middle ground. What decision have you made? I hope you've made the right one. Let's bow together in prayer. If you're here this morning, and as a result of our time studying the Word of God, there's a need for you to make some some decisions. If you've never trusted Christ in a real and personal way, you've just been aim, 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 aiming. And you need to fire and say, Lord, I'm ready to accept you and make you my personal Lord and Savior and Messiah. This morning would be a great time to do that. And if you're here, even if you're a Christian, but there's areas of your life where you're still the Lord. You've never let Jesus Christ be the Lord. This is the morning to make the decision to abdicate. And if you want to do either one of those things, I'm going to give you a few moments of silence. Why don't you take a moment now and tell God what you want to do? Dear Father, thank you for making the issue so crystal clear for us this morning. Thank you for reminding us that the way we can know that you are who you say you are. It's because you did something no religious leader ever claimed to do, much less did. Rise from the dead and conquer death. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to take to heart your words, that whoever is not for you, they're against you. There's no middle ground with Jesus Christ. I ask that you would help every one of us here to make sure we examine our life 
and that we have made the decision to be deliberately, actively for you. Not only when it comes to salvation, but when it comes to our businesses, our words, our money, our sexual habits, our integrity, whatever, that we're for you, Lord. Because as much as we're able, with your power, we're trying to run our lives the way you tell us. Deliver us from the bane of wanting to be neutral. Make us men and women who are willing to take our stand firmly and unashamedly with Jesus Christ. Knowing that in eternity, we'll be so glad we did. Lord, whatever decisions people made here this morning and prayed in that silent moment, I pray you'd honor those decisions and help them to follow through by your power. Thank you for speaking to our hearts this morning. Change our life by what we've heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.